The reading this evening is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. If you'd like to follow it in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1173. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Evening, everybody. Can you all hear me okay? Brilliant. Thanks, Mandy, for reading. You are my favourite reader of all the readers in the church. And I don't mind if other people are jealous that I've said that. It's just, it's just a fact. Can I just pray before we um, crack on? Heavenly Father, we are subject to your word and your authority. Lord God, we love you. Thank you for being with me in this, this week of preparing this talk. But Lord God, we, we want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. Father, we pray that we be encouraged, we pray that we be challenged. Lord God, Heavenly Father, and that's the thing, Father, you are our Father. We throw ourselves on you now in your word, and we pray that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, some housekeeping, shall we? Who knows? We'll do this like Sunday school. Hands up if you know what book of the Bible we're studying at the moment, without looking at that map that Abby's put up on the, on the thing. Can anyone remember? Ephesians, well done everyone, you remembered that really well. And that is, we're, we're in the middle of a sermon series. Now, I, I like a sermon series. I think that they're important because you've not just got your snapshots each week. You don't just dive into one bit of Ephesians, you or whatever bit of the book you're looking at. You get this overall, I'm going to use a bit of jargon, a bit of a learning journey over the weeks that you're in. You see, Paul didn't just write this letter so that we would have some stuff to preach about. 
He didn't write it saying, right, this will be week one for the Ephesians church sermon series and they'll get down to about the third paragraph, etc. This was it. In fact, I was talking with Eddie just before and praying with Eddie just before and, and Eddie rightly said, this, at one stage, Ephesians itself was the sermon. This letter would have just been read out and that's your learning, right? This is, this is Paul speaking. But we get the chance to pull it apart and look in a bit more detail but as the weeks go by, um, and we've got a few weeks in Ephesians, the hope is that we go a little bit beyond church was good today, or I liked church today, and move into this place where we feel that we really are learning something of what God has to say to us through the entire book of Ephesians. So a few things I'd encourage you to do as you come along to the evening services or any of the services with, with other sermon series going on, maybe consider making some notes. Maybe, um, even if it's just to help your concentration, I know a couple of people in this church to help their concentration take Sunday evenings to pick old nail varnish off of their fingernails during the talks, because it helps them to focus. But, but, but maybe making notes would be, would be a good way to go about these things. Or maybe something you might want to do is have a read at home. While you're in Ephesians, while we're going to be forcing you to look at Ephesians for the next few weeks, you might actually want to take up the baton yourself. And so we're pushing this book over the next few weeks. It's by Richard Kokin. It's called Ephesians for You. And it is a fantastic book. It's not too heavy. It's easy to read. But there's a lot of important stuff in here. Eddie tonight got us to... That's a photograph of Liam's thumb and stuff holding this book over there a few minutes ago. Thanks, Liam. Um, but the, Eddie started this evening by saying, what's God doing in your prayer life? And obviously we're looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians tonight. If you want to dig much deeper into that particular aspect of this passage, then grab this book, because the entire bit in this book about this passage is about that kind of comparison of what can we learn from Paul's prayer and what's your prayer life and how can we be encouraged in that. If you want to pay for WAC for this, it's £8. If you don't want to pay anything at all, just take it. If you want to pay something in between, do that. If you want to pay more, do that. We really don't mind. But there's a few here. If we run out tonight, then could I ask you to let Liam know that you want a copy and we'll just buy some more and get it to you. But it's a really good read. So I'm throwing that your way. Right, so... Let's get into it, shall we? I'll put this down. We need a bigger kind of lectern thing. There's never enough space on this. It's a shocker. Here we go. Right. Ephesians 1, chapter 15. Uh, chapter, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Last week, Eleanor, you remember, um, she beautifully introduced us to the world of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we looked at the ancient city of Ephesus itself, a square mile of commerce, and it was a marketplace. There were places of worship from various religions, including a synagogue, and there were theatres that were overlooked by this temple of the goddess Artemis. We saw how this was a culture of deeply held spiritual beliefs, which pervaded every area of life from how you made your money right through to your social status and even including family planning and childbirth. 
Artemis was everywhere. This goddess was everywhere. People really believed in her. And that everything in life really was seen through the lens of religion and through belief. And that, so for centuries before Paul even rocked up in Ephesus and even thought of writing this letter to, to the Ephesians, Ephesus had kind of been a noteworthy place. You get this with, with well-placed cities in good geographical locations near the sea, able to trade well. This was an important place and always had been. If you remember the stories of Daniel in the lion's den and Babylon and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and, and Persia and those great empires, those things, they happened like half a century before Paul um, wrote this letter. And that, but it was actually Ephesus that, that led the charge against Persia and worked very closely with other major cities to make sure that Persia didn't get too big for its boots. Even half a century before the Roman Empire or anything like that was going on, Ephesus was a big deal. And then we can see as well, and I'd encourage you to get, keep your Bibles open and have a flick around as I'm talking as well. Make sure that I'm not making this up as I go along. Put your hand up if you think I am. And that, um, if you look at Acts chapter 19, or maybe in your own time you want to do that, that's where we see that Paul visited Ephesus. And by this point in Acts chapter 19, Ephesus had kind of been supercharged by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had seen its potential and they decided to turn it into a major trading hub at this point. But along with that, we also see in Ephesus that there were a lot of disgruntled people having to pay a lot of tax. Um, everything rose immediately in favour of the Roman Empire and people earning a living would have found it harder and harder once the state had extracted its share and the average working man and woman would have felt, as I said, incredibly disgruntled at times. In short, Ephesus at this point that we're looking at it was, it was something of a cash cow for the, for the Roman Empire. That's what it was. There was loads going on and the Romans were milking it for all it's worth. If you've ever looked at the impact of like, the British Empire on India back in the day, and that you'll find it easy to understand how easily an empire can simultaneously be making and breaking a society. That's the sort of thing that was going on in Ephesus at the time. But all in all, for the average person willing to work, there was employment in Ephesus, and there was a steady flow of supplies, and as many as 100,000 people were able to join in the endless work of making the most of trade that were there. So it, it was quite a big place but it was a spiritually dark place, an incredibly spiritually dark place. A Roman emperor who considered himself to be a god was on the throne. Artemis with her temple and her ritualistic prostitutes was a huge thing within the culture. When Paul was in Ephesus, and if you take a look at Acts 19, one of the major impacts of his ministry was that actual sorcerers that actually called themselves sorcerers, that were sorcerers, they gave their lives to Jesus in droves and ceremonially burned 50,000 days, that's 136 years wages worth of so-called magical scrolls in an act of repentance. This was a place that was a, a seriously spiritually dark. Well, that's quite incredible when you think about it, actually, isn't it? Ephesus was quite a place to be, but it had everything going for it, really. 
This Ephesus was like where your least mature and, and most dodgy mate wants you to go on a stag do. I don't know if you've ever been, been invited on one of these shams. And that, but um, you, you kind of got to work it out with the best man gently about how you can dial it back a bit because, because you don't want to spend all of your money and your wife's not going to let you leave the country for two days for your children to raise. But your most irritating mate wants to go there because that's where it's all going on. It's, quite, it's the kind of city that has sticky tables and sticky dance floors. You know that sort of place? But anyway, into all of this, Paul sends this letter. And last week, he introduced the Ephesians to God, who was the active agent. Do you remember that? The one who instigates all the stuff. The one who gives all the gifts. Now, you might remember Eleanor's table from last week. You can see, we we went into some some grammar here. But if you look at the um, far right, if you look with every spiritual blessing in Christ to be holy and blameless, for adoption to sonship, his glorious grace, the riches of his grace, the mystery of his will. That's what we were looking at. This is what Paul opens with into this dark place. Do you remember it? Where we were looking at all these gifts that were already there. And you can look at verses 3 to 14 to recap yourself on that if you want to. These people were blessed. They're predestined. They're holy, blameless, chosen. Every spiritual blessing, as we said, all of these gifts flying in the face of a culture that said, get rich or die trying, and called you constantly to pursue a higher plane of existence through physical, emotional, and sexual experience into streets lined with sorcerers, trying to exchange your hard-earned money for momentary feelings of salvation. That's where Paul sent his letter And he says this sentence, this huge sentence, with all of these blessings in, that can be summarised in one phrase, is all done in Jesus. Do you remember last week? There's no need to strive. It's all done in Jesus. Whatever your culture has to offer, it's already been done in Jesus. In the one uber sentence, all acid reflux of an overly rich and ill-informed, overly processed diet is gone from the Ephesian Christians. From the Ephesian Christians, they find themselves like that tree. Do you remember the tree in Psalm one that's planted by a stream of living water? You know that image. They've gone from that unhealthy place, that place of perfect spiritual health. Or like the man in Psalm 18, you might remember him, you might not, but this was a man who had been placed in this spacious place. He could breathe, away from the marketplace, away from the darkness, away from it all. He was spiritually open and he was ready to commune with God. So tonight, we find Paul praying. He's praying for two things in particular. One, that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's in verse 17, if you take a look. And two, that the eyes of their heart might be opened. That's in verse 18. And we also sung that prayer tonight, didn't we? Thank you guys for leading us, by the way, in worship. It was fantastic. Um, In short, he's praying that they would be given yet more stuff. After all all of these blessings, all these things that they've got... He wants them to have more of them. It's not, it's not that they've not got 
open eyes, with, uh, hearts with open eyes, sorry. And it's not that God doesn't reveal stuff to them already. It's not that they don't already have wisdom. We get all of those things when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we get the Holy Spirit dwelling in us when we become Christians. But Paul's praying for more. He's praying for more for these people. They can't do it in their own strength. They can't be Ephesians in their own strength. They're going to need God's help and they're going to need God's perspective to get through. They're going to need it. Over the past few weeks, Chloe and I have been doing various relatively big jobs in our garden and driveway and that's possibly why um, I put this into the sermon here but it's a helpful illustration and that we've been painting fences and digging up a big bush out the front and building various bits and bobs but because we both work and have children we're having to make the most of every daylight hour to squeeze those jobs in and that the result is us often working until we can no longer see well enough outside to carry on. You've probably been there if you've ever sort of done up your house. You just get to that point. It's like, I can't see the screws anymore. I need to stop. And that we often get that tired feeling at the end of the day where it all feels never-ending because it's getting dark. The work we've done doesn't have the same visual impact as daylight would allow. And we wander back into the house and just crash out. And that, but the next morning, it's a different story altogether. The alarm goes off at ridiculous o'clock, and we get up and start opening the upstairs blinds and get a great view of the garden from our room and the drive from the boys' room. And suddenly, just because of the light and the sleep that we've had and the higher level of perspective from being on the top of your house, and that we're able to see. We could, what we couldn't the night before. We see the progress and we know that it's all worth it and we feel like we can do it and so we carry on again. Have you ever done that? Anyone that's done DIY? It is like that. You hate it at the end of every day and you love it at the start of every day. So yeah, does anyone ever get reminders from Google Photos on their phone? Yeah, do you get, do you get those? Okay, right. So they say, oh, six years ago today, I didn't have a belly. No, six years ago today, your kids were this cute, or whatever it is, right? So I love those, and because you get to look back at your life and see the progress. You get to see the change and the journey. Even the stupid stuff, like not remembering that you arranged a room differently at one point brings a little touch of perspective. Like I remembered the other day that the kid's bunk bed was on the other side of the room once and I'd totally forgotten. It's like, we've made progress. If we've done nothing else, we've moved the bunk bed. That's fantastic. And that, but things move on. That's, that's the vibe you get, right? Things move on and life is bigger than the moment you are in, right? No matter how stressed you are, life is bigger than the moment that you're in. And so you, you, you feel like the problems that you had then you might, even rem- you might even have a bad memory of how you felt at that point, but you know that those problems are no more and you've been able to get through them and so you feel like you can face even more. It can be a genuinely powerful experience and I think it's a real blessing that we have in the 21st century that we get perspective like that put under our noses so regularly. But if you take a look at verse 17... Paul's very clear and very direct in what he's asking God for, for the Ephesians. He wants God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Take a look at it. If you look at Acts 19, 
verses 1 to 7, you will see that it says, he says, having to look it up, Acts 19, 1 to 7 says this. While Apollos, that was another preacher, was at, was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in one, in the one coming after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. This spiritual voyage of discovery that the Ephesians had been on had been one of gradual revelation of the truth. They had started with the establishment of a synagogue in their town. Many places in Europe had that sort of thing at that time, many places in Turkey too. And then with the arrival of preachers such as Apollos, who was mentioned in that passage, they had heard about this guy called John the Baptist. Fantastic. It's exactly what you want to be hearing about in the ancient world because he's going to point you to Jesus who was preparing the way for a Messiah and calling for people to repent and to be baptised that they might be ready to receive him. And they'd faithfully done that. They'd done the right thing. They saw some truth in what was going on there so they'd taken that step. And now Paul shows up and he introduces them to Jesus' baptism, the Messiah's baptism, which included this third person of God that they had never heard of called the Holy Spirit. What a massive moment for the Ephesian church. And the result was electric. If you go on to read the rest of Acts chapter 19 and the following verses, you'll see that some incredible, miraculous events took place once Jesus entered onto the scene, bringing his Holy Spirit with him. When they made that move, that was the moment for Ephesus. And so we find this letter being sent to people that they're now followers of Jesus, but they're on this journey. There were conversions, there were healings, there were dismantlings of false religions. There's prophecy, speaking in tongues. God and his kingdom was revealed to them just as it had been when Jesus himself was around and ministered in Israel and just as it had been when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Being baptised, as John taught, was good and it was right, but that was just a voice calling in the desert, making the way for Jesus. Jesus said it himself, the kingdom of God is near, repent. Repent, that John the Baptist baptism of repentance is not and has never been the simple act of feeling guilt followed by knowing you are forgiven. It's always been the way in which we prepare to be part of the kingdom of God. That's what it is. You don't get into the kingdom of God unless you are repentant. That's why we do it. It's not because we've got low self-esteem. It's because we have seen the kingdom of God and we want to get into it and we know that we need Jesus for it. When we confessed our sins earlier and received forgiveness together in this service, we weren't performing a ritual because that is how we earn our salvation. 
This isn't the temple of Artemis. That's the sort of things they were doing in the temple of Artemis, right? This is church, and it's different. This isn't, uh, I'm not a sorceress, like trying to give you scrolls that will help you with life. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what Christians are. Paul literally just went off on one about that in verses 3 to 14 that Eleanor was speaking on last week. It's all done in Jesus. God is the active agent here. And that's what we're doing here in this sticky table, sticky dance floor city called London. To do that, just as they did in in Ephesus, we're going to need God to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation just as they did won't we? Do you feel like you can do this in your own strength, this Christian thing, this kingdom of God thing? I don't feel that I can do it in my own strength, ever, ever do I feel that I can do it in my own strength. I need God to give me wisdom. I need him to reveal to me things about life. Why do the Ephesians need this spirit of wisdom and revelation? Why does a church need this spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why does our church need this? Why does St. John's need this? What's so good about revelation from God and the Holy Spirit being active and, and prophecy and healing and tongues, spiritual gifts, all of this? What, what's, what's so good about it? Why do we do it? Well, verse 17 tells us what the reason for all this stuff is. Take a look at it. So that you may know him, that is God, better. That's the whole point of all of this. It's not so that we can be a bunch of sorcerers that have actually found the true power source. Not that we can walk proudly knowing that God tells us stuff, but so that we can know him better. Simply put, He wants you, he wants to walk with you in the cool of the morning just as he did with Adam and Eve before it all went wrong. That's what he wants. He gives us his spirit of wisdom and revelation because he wants to know you and he wants you to know him. God wants friendship with us. In verse 18, Paul wants the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians to be opened. Take a look. Because they need hope. Verse 18 says, I I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We need hope to get through this. The Ephesians needed hope. It's one of Paul's big three things that matter, isn't it? No matter what. Faith, hope, and love. Paul's always saying this to to all the churches that he speaks to. You find faith, hope, and love in all of his writings. He wrote that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that passage that often gets read out at weddings that that you might be familiar with. To be the kingdom of God in Ephesus, you needed that hope. When your small business fails, as many would have, in Ephesus, you would need that hope. When your slave master is abusive towards you, as many were in Ephesus, and you're a Christian, you're going to need this hope. When you're surrounded by a culture that endlessly pushes you towards stuff that is not of God, 
you're going to need this hope. When you're expecting a baby and you recently stopped praying to that goddess you used to pray to called Artemis, and now you're worried because it's part of your culture and you're carrying guilt that you should have done it, and now instead of praying to Artemis, you're praying to Jesus, you need hope that he's real. You need hope in that moment. This is massive for them. How would a first century Ephesian feel since turning to Jesus, all they'd known was social rejection and persecution and and confusion? Would they need hope to get through all of that? They would need hope to get through all of that. But how, how could they, in fact, how can we feel hope when all we see is struggle and hardness so often? When life can be hard, how can we feel hope? Well, we have to see it with different eyes. We have to be viewing life differently. We have to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We have to have the eyes of our hearts opened. We need to stop painting the fence in the growing darkness and take a fresh look in the light, just like me and Chloe have to, so that we can see what's already being achieved. That's how you keep going as a Christian. That's what Paul's praying for. You've got all this and I'm praying for more of it because you're going to need it. We need to understand that being the kingdom of God is ultimately done for us. Just as we looked at last week, you don't have to strive for that. You need hope that it's ours. And that hope is not in ourselves or a ritual or a temple or a committee or a skill set or a career, it's in Jesus and in his power. That's where that hope is. If you look at verse 18 to 23, again, they say this, I pray that also the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given to come. Sorry far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Why? For the church, for us. That's why God did all of that, for us. That's our hope. All this stuff is done for us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians chapter 1 is full of truths that are frankly too big for us. If you were at the talk last week, at the service last week, and you're at the service this week as well, what we've had is an absolutely jam-packed passage full of theological truths that are amazing but frankly, quite easy to get along with and nod along to when you're at church. But on the tube tomorrow morning, maybe not so much. Maybe it won't be on your mind when you're on the school run tomorrow, when you are um, having an argument tomorrow, when you are stressed out tomorrow, whatever it might be. So I wanted to 
just to bring this, bring this to a close by just suggesting some ways in which we can actually apply this. Because we've got these truths and we can read them any time that we like. One, for church. In a couple of days' time, right, if you're, if you're looking to survive and have this hope, right, you've got the chance to be sat in a room with other believers being reminded of truths just like this. We call it home group, right? You have the chance to walk alongside other people who want this too and will pray for and with you, who will pick you up when you stumble. You should make the most of that. You should expect God to be moving actively among you when you meet as a home group. And if you're not in a home group and you're struggling to survive, this isn't a plug because it's strategically important for us. If you're not in a home group and you are feeling spiritually dry and you're losing hope, get one. Get into a home group. I'm pretty sure someone could talk to Eddie after the service about getting into a home group. I'm sure that'd be absolutely fine. But you don't have to go to even next Sunday. In a couple of days' time, you can be encouraged at your home group. In just seven days' time, you can be back here again, right? Worshipping with everyone. And you can come expecting God to speak to you, to move you, and to give you his spirit of wisdom and revelation. You can expect that. Coming to church is really important for a Christian. Not because we're religious and not because you get a brownie point in heaven or wherever, or it gets noted down somewhere, it's actually because we need it to keep going. We need to be coming to church. And then, also, in church, if you want to dig deeper spiritually, later on, Paul's going to be talking about unity with us. We've got to strive for unity as a church. We won't survive as a church without unity without peace, without that love. If you feel that the eyes of your heart are closed and like you struggle to even begin to feel like God is giving you his spirit of wisdom and revelation in this church, then above all else, strive for unity. You need to make the apologies you need to make and you need to pick up the phone to the people that you need to pick up the phone to. You need to shake hands with those toward whom you carry anger. You've got to commit yourself to forgiveness. You've got to commit yourself to unity and then by the power of the spirit of wisdom and revelation we'll grow up into him, into Jesus and expect God to move when we come together. Don't come to church grumpy. Come to church honest. Come to church, you know, being real. You don't have to be happy, clappy all the time but you should expect God to move no matter how you feel. If you come thinking church is going to be rubbish and you're not going to like the songs, I guarantee you church is going to be rubbish. You're not going to like the songs. But if you come to church saying, I expect my Heavenly Father to tell me something tonight, you'll be in a much better place spiritually. It almost sounds too simple to be true, but it is. On your front line, one thing you can do if you need this hope, find or start a prayer group at work. Find some Christians, start praying with them in that context. Because of your equal opportunities policy at work, no one would dare stop you. Crack on with it and do it. If you're at school or uni, find or start some, a prayer group with people. Commit to praying before you just your standard meetings, even briefly praying for each calendar appointment as you put them into your diary. I do that all the time. 
Bring spirituality into your general admin. Commit to being kind to people at work. Commit to being Jesus in your workplace. Don't just think of it as a place that you get money from or a place where you excel. It's a place where you can be Jesus. And then prayer. And this is perhaps the most obvious application. As Paul is talking about prayer, but it is, it's key. None of this is possible without prayer. You need to get a regular prayer life going. You've got to. You can't get through this without it. You just can't. You can't know God better without doing it. It's hard to apply in any other way other than to say, this is what all of the Christians that knew God best did in the past. A prayer life is key. And so that's my final application. Even if it's just a few minutes each day, start talking to God. That's what Paul's prayer was for the Ephesians. No matter what they were going through in Ephesus, that they would lift up their eyes to God, that they would do everything in that perspective. But it wasn't his only prayer for the Ephesians. He also prayed another prayer for them. And I'm going to close by reading it to you. I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord God, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. We love you, Father. If your spirit is, is prompting any hearts tonight, help us not to leave without responding to your prompt. In Jesus' name, amen.